Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Uh, Let us turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. So Romans chapter 12, I will read starting in verse 3, and I'll read through to verse 8. So Paul writes, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is, is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in, the serv- in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So last week we began the, I guess, the last major section of teaching in Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, it, the last actual part of the letter sort of like greetings and farewells and so on. But this is the last major chunk of meat in Paul's letter to the Romans. And having given us then a full-orbed examination of the gospel of Jesus Christ with all of its manifold benefits, Paul now is going to exhort us to live these gospel truths out in our lives. So the book of Romans, much like our beloved Heidelberg Catechism, is structured along the lines of guilt, grace, and gratitude. Or as I've been kind of repeating over and over again, uh, doctrine, doxology, duty. So we learn some truth. We praise God for that truth, and then we move out in duty, performing what he has commanded us to do. And here we are in Romans chapter 12. We're now in that gratitude or duty part of the letter. And this is really how Paul structures many of his letters. They're they're pretty much two parts. You can almost pick them out, you know, where he will give you some teaching, and then he'll say, okay, now in light of this teaching, here's how you are to act. Here's how you are to live these truths out. You see this in Ephesians. You see this particularly like we're looking at now in Romans, uh, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, First Thessalonians. All of these letters are somewhat structured in the form of teaching, then practice. So here's what you need to know, and now here's what you need to do in light of what you know. So it's always then the indicative, or what is true, or what is the case, followed by the imperative, the command. How do I live this out? So it's first the truth, then the duty. Now what is special about what we saw last week in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, is that those two verses form, as I've been saying, the foundation of all Christian living. All of our duty, all of our obedience, all of our thankful gratitude that we show to God flows out of what we learned last week. This idea of having a whole life dedicated to God as a living sacrifice. And this idea of a living sacrifice consists basically in two things. So you have to have a non-conformist attitude. Do not be conformed to the world. And then to have a transformed or renewed mind, a mind that has been renewed by the Spirit, a mind that is being continually renewed through the Word. 
Now, so as part of this notion that of being a living sacrifice, is, this is going to be addressed now in our passage this morning. This is the first outflowing of that. And it's going to be talking about this idea of spiritual gifts. Now, this passage, like others in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4, all deal with this notion or this topic of the spiritual gifts. So I'm going to take a little bit of time to talk about them because the spiritual gifts, like some other biblical teachings, is one of those doctrines that kind of separates Christians. Okay, and they can be separated into two, and I'm using very overly general kind of simplistic uh, divisions here, but you've got your Pentecostals and your Charismatics on one hand, and then basically everybody else. So the Reformed, Baptist, Evangelical, most Lutherans, and so on and so forth on the other hand. And the Pentecostals and the Charismatics believe that some that all of these uh, so-called Charismatic or sign gifts like tongues, prophecy, healing, those kind of special miracle type gifts are still functional today in some shape or manner. And then the rest of us, Reformed Baptists, will, we believe, not, not Reformed, I mean, Reformed, comma, Baptist, comma, I mean, the Reformed Baptists too, but uh, we believe that those sign gifts have ceased functioning. Their, their purpose has been fulfilled, and they are no longer in operation today. So the Pentecostal, the charismatic people see these gifts, these special sign gifts, and they, they focus mostly on tongues, but sometimes you see like the faith healers on, on the TV evangelist, you know, they touch the head and the guy goes, oh, you know, and usually what happens is that's probably a person that was healthy to begin with, and then they're supposed to pretend like they can't walk, and then they're touched, and I was like, look, I can dance, and whatever, but so you've got those. So these gifts, like I said, they believe that they continue in the church to some form or some extent today. Uh, these type of experiences, these gifts as they are manifestations of or evidence of what they will call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you are a believer, and now then at some point, then you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. So they will say, have you received the second blessing? Have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is sort of this second grace that is given to some believers, usually those who have attained some level of personal holiness in their life. They, you know, they've graduated from entry-level Christian to a higher level of Christian life, and then they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is evidenced in them being able to speak in tongues, usually. And they will appeal, like I said, to texts such as Acts chapter 2, in which the disciples spoke in tongues after being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And there are other passages in the book of Acts where you see this kind of... Uh, presentation of, you know, the disciples will go, they'll witness to somebody, the Spirit comes upon them and they speak in tongues. This happens to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. It happens again in Acts chapter 19, where the Spirit comes upon them, they speak in tongues. So they think that that's what they would call normative. That's how it should be even today. Now what they feel, what they fail, I should say, to understand is the nature and the meaning, not only of the sign of tongues, but also the redemptive nature of the book of Acts as a whole. Now, these sign gifts point to something, right? A sign is not the reality. The sign points to something. I've used this illustration before. If you go six miles east of here or eight miles east of here on Route 6, 
there's a sign that says Sutton, eight miles away. Now, if you were to go up to the sign and grab onto the sign, would you think that you were in Sutton? No, the sign points you to Sutton. These signs, these miracle gifts point to a greater reality. That's the point. So in Acts 2, not only was that that prophetic utterance where they were speaking forth in tongues and filled with the Spirit, not only was that a fulfillment of prophecy, the prophecy of Joel that we see in Joel chapter 2, but it's also, in a sense, kind of a rolling back of the curse at Babel. So you remember what happened at the Tower of Babel, right? The, The gathered humanity came, all the people came to one point, and they said, let's build a tower up to heaven and let's reach the heavens and let's, let's storm the gates of heaven. And God looks down on them. And what does he do? He, he laughs is one thing. <laughs> and then he does something to them. What does he do to them? He, he confuses their languages. So they are dispersed. Right. So they, they go out. Now, you again, you've got here in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, you've got a gathering of the nations again. People who speak different languages. And now God gives the disciples the ability to speak in all of those languages, a rolling back of that curse at at Babel. But again, the whole book of Acts falls more into what theologians will call the Historia Salutis, not the Ordo Salutis. And I'm using fancy words there, but Historia Salutis just basically means the history of salvation as opposed to the order of salvation. So the history of salvation is just what God has done for us. Okay? And these are just things that we see recorded in the Bible that talk about all the wonderful works of God, what God has done for us in history. Okay? Many of these things are not to be repeated. You don't repeat the resurrection. You don't repeat the crucifixion. Because those things were once and done events in redemptive history that made salvation possible for all of us. It's part of the history of salvation. You don't repeat the birth of David. You don't repeat the birth of the son of David, Jesus Christ. You don't repeat these things. They're not for us to be, it's not for our common practice to continue to do these things. We don't part the Red Sea. We don't storm Canaan and start to slay the Canaanites, right? These are just things you don't do again as opposed to the order of salvation, what we in God need to do in order to be saved. Those are things that we practice continually, the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, the exercise of our spiritual gifts, as we see, we'll see here. Because Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2 that the foundation of the church is built upon Christ, who is the cornerstone, and the apostles, and the prophets. So this apostolic age that we see here in the book of Acts is also foundational for the church. Okay, these are once and done kind of things, mostly. I mean, it's not, it's it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay, It's, it's describing what has happened in the history of salvation, not prescribing necessarily things that we need to continue to practice in our lives. So as I said earlier, as such, then in reform circles and other uh, groups, too, we largely believe that these sign gifts, tongues, prophecy, uh, miraculous healings have ceased in the church. Their, Their function has ceased because their purpose has ceased. Their purpose has been fulfilled once the church has been established in the book of Acts. 
So then we don't need then to create this kind of quasi second class citizenship where you've got those who are baptized in the Holy Spirit and those who are still waiting because they need to be holier or they need to do something or they need to whatever in order to get that second blessing. So we would say that all believers not only have the gift of the Holy Spirit by which we're saved, but we also have the gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit by which we are enabled then to serve for the edification of one another and for the edification of the church. And that's kind of what we're going to see here now as we go into Romans 3 verses or Romans 12 verses 3 through 8. Uh, This passage, I think, breaks down nicely into three parts. We're going to see in verse 3 the principle that Paul is going to show us on how to exercise our spiritual gifts, and that principle is humility. Then we're going to see him illustrate the idea of the spiritual gifts by using the image of the body in verses 4 and 5. And then the command in verses 6 through 8, use your gifts. Use your gifts. Whatever gift you have, use it. So verse 3 Uh, The principle here is humility. So the first outpouring then of a whole life dedicated to God is manifested in humility. Verse three, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, note first, Paul says here through the grace that's given to me. In other words, Paul is going to provide some teaching on the spiritual gifts, and he's doing so as one who himself has been gifted. I've been gifted, and I'm going to instruct you how to use your gifts. Some evidence of Paul that he was gifted by the, by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3.10, according to the grace of God which was given to me. Like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. Or Galatians 2.9, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Peter and John, who are reputed to be pillars of the church, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Or finally in Ephesians 3, verses 7 and 8, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So Paul has been gifted. He has been graced, if you will, for the work of the ministry. And out of this grace, then, he's going to exhort others to use your gifts. You too have been gifted to use your gifts now. Now, again, this exhortation is a call to humility. He's calling Christians to be humble as he says, Do not think or not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Now, this phrase, to think more highly, it's one one word in the Greek, huperphroneo. It means to be overproud, to be high-minded. Don't be high-minded, is what he's saying. Don't have a high mind. Don't, Don't think more highly of yourself. If you can link, if you can think of a list of sins that God hates, I mean, he hates all of them. But God really hates pride. Okay, pride is, I like to call, pride is God repellent, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, James 4. Pride was the heart, at the heart of Satan's rebellion. If you believe that those sections in Ezekiel 28, in Isaiah 14, I believe, 
are speaking of Satan's rebellion. It talks about how the how Satan said, I will ascend, I will do this. He says five times, I will, I will, I will. Very pride-oriented. Pride was involved at the fall. God gave a command, don't eat. Adam and Eve thought, well, we know better because we think God is holding out on us because that's how Satan tempted her, right? That's how Satan tempted both of them. God's holding out on you. It's like, yeah, we feel like God is holding out on us. I want that fruit now. I want to be like God. Pride is what hinders every human relationship. It's kind of hard to be working for the interests of others when you're always thinking about your own interests. And Paul is continually warning Christians against pride. Just last chapter in Romans 11, verse 20, Paul warned his Gentile readers not to be conceited. Yes, Jewish branches were broken off of the tree so that you can be grafted in. But don't be conceited. Don't think that's because you're special. Because God can just as easily break you off and graft those natural branches back in. So don't be conceited. And then just a little later in our next section, in verse 16 of chapter 12, Paul will warn us to say, do not be haughty in mind. And that's the same language used in Romans 11.20. It's the same phrase. Then again, if you think, when we consider where we once were without Christ in the world, then we have no room for pride. Right? We were enemies. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were slaves to sin. We were in bondage to sin. You know, so where is pride? How can you have any pride when you are completely at enmity with God? Moreover, when you realize that in our salvation we provided nothing except the sin which made it necessary in the first place, right? That's the only thing we provided for our salvation. It's like, so what did you bring for your salvation? My sin. <laughs> what did you bring for your salvation? Well, my sin. <laughs> I had to be saved. I had this boatload of garbage here that needed to be cleaned up in my life, and I couldn't do it myself. So here we go. So there's no room for humility, or for, for pride, I should say. Now, in this case here in Romans 12, Paul is speaking of humility in the context of our spiritual gifts. Because Paul says, God has allotted to each of you a measure of faith. Interesting that phrase, measure of faith. These gifts are exercised in and through our faith. But the Holy Spirit has gifted or graced all of us. We each have been allotted a measure of faith. Now, we each do not have the same gift, nor do we each have the gifts to the same degree, as we'll see in a moment. But the important thing to note is that each of us has been gifted. Each of us has been equipped by the Spirit. And as such, then, we have no room for pride. You can't say, I'm gifted, you're not. Right? That's kind of what happens in Corinthian, in the Corinthian context of the spiritual gifts. When Paul talks to them, they, had, they were taking pride in their gifts. And particularly the gifts of tongues and the gifts of prophecy. And they were like, I can speak in tongues, you can't. And there, it was, there was creating friction in the church. They were being proud. Paul, something Paul will say here, don't do that. Don't be proud. We are all been graced. There's no room for pride, which is why Paul will say we need to have sound judgment. That's another interesting word because it's related to the first word. 
The, this word is sophroneo. So it's got the same base word of phroneo, to think and to be of sound mind is what the word means. So in other words, the principle can be boiled down to this. Don't be high-minded, but have a sound mind. Okay? Consider where you came from. Consider where you are now. Consider how you got there. Consider the fact that we've each been gifted. Do not be high-minded. Be sound-minded. Now, when you want to illustrate the concept of humility in the variegated gifts of the Holy Spirit, where do you turn? How, do you, how would you illustrate this? What's well, a perfect way to illustrate the spiritual gifts being used together in the church? The body. All right, he uses the illustration of the body. Verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, that, and then we're going to stop there. So the human body here is the perfect illustration of a whole being greater than the sum of its parts. So for the human body to function properly, all of its members must do their part. Eyes need to see. Ears need to hear. Mouths need to speak. Arms need to be able to lift or carry or bear burdens. Legs need to be able to support and walk. And when a part of the body isn't functioning, we know it, right? Do I get an amen on that one? When a part of your body isn't working, you're like, oh, my back, it's not working the way it's supposed to. Or I've got a pain in my shoulder or my knee's giving out. And I, you know, I, I kind of limp or whatever. We know when the body isn't functioning to full form. But these different body parts do not have all the same function. Now, I'm not telling you anything breathtakingly you know, new here. This is not like breaking news. Your body parts have different functions. You know, you know, in, in other news, water is wet. You know, that's kind of, <laughs> that's the idea. It's like, this is, but it's a good illustration, right? Ears do not see. Hands do not support the body. Hearts do not think. And this is by God's design. In fact, in typical Pauline fashion, in 1 Corinthians 12, 17, he illustrates this idea the absurdity of the body parts doing different functions by being absurd. He illustrates it. It's like, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? Or if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? As important as the eye is, and the eye is probably the most important of our five senses, it's at least the one that we've, we really kind of depend upon the most, the whole body cannot be just one big giant eye, right? There'll be something out of some weird science fiction movie. You know, we're all just giant floating eyes, but we can't hear or speak to one another. And Paul, again, in a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 12, speaks about this idea of the different parts of the body. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 14, he writes, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are part of the one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit, so one Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into the body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. So he's talking about how this Holy Spirit gifting, even though it's on the body, it's given to all the members of the body. So if this is true for the human body, how much more then, to use a Pauline argument, how much more 
than for the body of Christ, the church. And that's the point that Paul makes in verse 5. So then we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So you think of the miracle of the human body, right? Its design, its function, the fact that it grows, the fact that it heals itself, all of these things that we regenerate, that you, you lay down on a bed for six or seven or eight hours and you're kind of rejuvenated for the next day. This is a God-designed feat, right? A God-designed feat of human genetics in which you take the genetic material of two people and you weave it together to form a new person. Now think of the body of Christ, right? It's not just made up of the genetic material of two people into one body. It is made up of a bunch of people, right? Think of all the... Now, most of us here grew up in this town or have lived in this town most of our lives, but think of other churches or the church across the world. It is made up of all kinds of people, people from different backgrounds, different ethnic groups, different sexes, different walks in life, all kinds of things, and we're all united in the body of Christ by faith. That's much, that's much more of a miracle than the human body functioning, right? You know, the fact that the body of Christ can function with all of our, you know, little idiosyncrasies and our foibles and our, our you know, habits and whatever, and, you know, we all get together and we are to function as one body. But However, due to indwelling sin, the body doesn't function like it ought to. The point is, though, we are one body in Christ. The church, with its variety of peoples and spiritual gifts, is to function as a whole. We are to get together when we get together as the body every Lord's Day, and we are to function as a whole, as a unit. It doesn't matter where you came from, what town, what state, what country. It doesn't matter if you're male, female, rich, poor, black, white, slave, free. We are all one body in Christ. And as Paul will say, thus individually members of one another. Which is why Paul emphasized the principle of humility earlier. The body of Christ won't or can't function if we're each not working for the benefit of one another and for the body as a whole. So in other words, again, do not think more highly of yourself, but have a sound judgment. So then finally, in uh, verses 6 through 8, Paul gives us the command to use your gifts. So now Christian, Christianity is not a solo sport, right? I may have used this illustration before, but I remember back, it was probably in the 90s, maybe the early 2000s, the United States Army had an ad campaign called the Army of One. I don't know if anybody remembers seeing those Army of One commercials. It was this desert landscape. So I guess this must have been during you know the Iraqi War period. So you got this desert landscape, and you've got this soldier in full you know gear, and he's trudging through the sand. And it's like you know the idea is like you know you can be all you can be in the army. We're an Army of One. You know, and it's like. I look at that guy, it's like, that guy's either lost <laughs> or he's about to be killed by some Iraqi soldier because he has no support around him. He's all by himself. We are not an army of one. The spiritual gifts with which each of us has been graced are not to sit on a spiritual shelf gathering spiritual dust. They are to be used 
Verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Now, okay, I'm just going to deal with a bit of a textual issue here first. Depending on the type of translation you have, uh, you may have some words in italics. Is that true? If you have New King James, you have italicized words there. I know I use the New American Standard. It has some words in italics. So in the New American Standard, the phrase, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, is in italics. If you have a New King James, the phrase, let us use them, is in italics. If you're using an English Standard Version, it also has the phrase, let us use them, but not in italics. The, the words in italics are added. They're added by the translators in order to assist or aid in the understanding and reading of the Bible. In other words, they're supplied because you don't, ex- you don't exactly have a one-to-one translation or transference of words in Greek to words in English. You don't have that in any language. There are always words either subtracted or supplied in order to get the meaning across. Uh, so these words were added by the translators to aid in our reading and understanding. Now, the Greek phrase literally says in English, and having gifts different according to the grace that was given to us. And then it says, if prophecy, prophesy, so on and so forth. There's no verb in there, use them. But that's implied. That phrase, let us use them, is implied based on the context of the rest of the passage. The point being is that each of us has been given a grace gift. Each of us has been given in the Greek a charismata. That's where you get charismatic from, by the way. These are grace gifts. Each of us has been given a charismata by the Holy Spirit for the benefit of the body of Christ, and it would be a sin not to exercise them accordingly. In the Heidelberg, Lord's Day 21, question 55, we see this on the communion of saints, where the question is asked, what do you understand by the communion of saints? Well, it says first, the answer is first, that believers, one and all, as members of the Lord Jesus Christ, are partakers with him in all his treasures and gifts. So the first thing to note is that because of our union with Christ, because of our being members of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are partakers with him in all his treasures. We, we get the inheritance that he gets and all his gifts. He was anointed by the Spirit. We have an anointing by the Spirit. Second, that each one of us now must feel himself or herself bound, obligated to use his or her gifts readily and cheerfully for the advantage and welfare of other members. So it is our duty, Paul is saying here, to employ our gifts for the advantage and welfare of the other members. So I use my gifts for the advantage and the welfare of the other members. You use your gifts for the advantage and the welfare of the other members. Imagine if your eye could say, I don't feel like my needs are being met. I'm going to go on strike today. I'm not going to let you see anything anymore. That wouldn't happen. And part of God's plan for a well-functioning church is for each of us then to exercise his or her spiritual gifts for the advantage and welfare of other members. But now note that these gifts differ according to the grace that was given to each of us. 
And this goes back now to Paul's concept of humility. Now you may say, I don't like my gift. Is there a return receipt? Did it come in the package? Can I take that back to Target? Or can I return it back to Amazon? I don't like my gift. I want to return it. I want to get another. No, you cannot do that. Sorry. Each of us are graced according to God's plans and purposes. Each church is made up of a collection of individuals, each with a unique charismata, each with a unique gifting given by God through the Holy Spirit for this particular body at this particular time. So to complain to God that God hasn't recognized your awesome leadership skills or your awesome speaking skills or your awesome organizational skills is to say to God that you did not know what you were doing when you gifted me. Kind of goes back to Romans 9, right? What you know, shall the pot say to the pot, you know, to the potter? I don't like my handle. You put it on the wrong side. I don't like that my spout is shaped a certain way. No, you wouldn't do that. Now, the rest of the passage, verses 6 through 8, the last half of 6 through 8, just highlights a sampling of the grace gifts. So Paul will say, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service, in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, this list is not meant to be exhaustive, nor are the other lists given in Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. These are not an exhaustive list of all the spiritual gifts. But the point here is to give some examples of the gifts with which God blesses the church. He blesses the church with people who have gifts of teaching, with people who have gifts of exhortation, with people who have gifts of giving, of leading, of showing mercy, of prophecy. These are gifts given to the church to be used for the building up of the church. Now, just some final thoughts on this passage. First, this, now, I'm not dogmatic on this, okay? So I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord here. But I think it's probably best to see each of us as possessing a gift, which is an amalgam of some of these gifts in, in the list here. So if you think of you know, how the painters painted in the old days, they had those palettes and they just had little <coughs> splotches of paint on there. And as they're painting, take a little bit of red, a little bit of yellow, and then a little bit of brown or whatever. You know, and that's kind of what I see the gift as, that each of us has some of these gifts to varying degrees. Some of us have more gifts of teaching, preaching, whatever. Some of us have more in the way of giving, of serving, of being generous, and things like that. So in other words, it's an amalgam. It's a combination of these various gifts that you see on this list. Now, again, I'm not dogmatic on that. Maybe it is. You know, you've got three gifts. I've got, you know, you've got four gifts. You've got, you know, whatever. I think I like to just think of it as you've got a gift that's made up of some of these things, some combination of these things. So in other words, I would see my gift is part teaching, part prophetic, not in like a foretelling or foretelling, but a speaking forth, being able to speak forth the word of God, part leadership, etc. The second thing to 
think about in this passage is we ought not to feel slighted if we have a less flashy gift, nor are we to be haughty if we have a more flashy gift. And I put that word flashy in quotes. Okay? In other words, that was the problem again at Corinth. So they were exalting the flashy gifts. I speak in tongues. I prophesy. I heal people. And other people are like, oh, I just, I just kind of serve. I kind of just help people out. Or, you know, God has gifted me to be good with money. And I just kind of give to the church because I want to see the, the work of the church being built up. It's like, well, your gift isn't good enough because I speak in tongues and so on and so forth. And I've got a flashy gift. And they were exalting that. We can kind of have that mentality. It's like, well, you know, some of you have flashy gifts and, and I feel like I've been cheated or, you know, I have a flashy gift. So neener, neener, you don't have as flashy a gift as I do, whatever. That's not how we are. To, we're not to feel slighted. We're not to feel haughty. I've been gifted to be a pastor, but with this flashy gift comes a whole boatload of responsibilities that if I don't carry them out, I am held to a higher standard of judgment. Right? James 3 says, not many of you should be teachers because God will hold you to a higher account. Right? God is going to hold me to account for everything I say. It has to be from his word. If it's not, I'm held to account. Or Paul says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He was burdened, if you will, to use that phrase from Friday night. He was burdened with the gospel. So he felt himself cursed if he didn't preach the gospel. That was his gift, but it was also his burden. And then third, note how Paul exhorts us to use our gifts here. Particularly like in those last three. Giving with liberality. Leading with diligence. And mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, don't be like, all right, I'm giving. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or, all right, mercy, I'll show you mercy, you know, but I'm going to be grumpy about it, or, you know, things like that. Again, it goes back to the words of the catechism. Each one must feel himself bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully because you've been gifted by God for this purpose. And it's a, it is a blessing to be able to share those gifts with others. So don't deprive the body of Christ of that gift that God's grace has given you to build up the church. Next time, uh, we're going to continue. We're going to finish Romans chapter 12 next week as we look at verses 9 through 21.